Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. I don't want all that plastic crap that's never going away, that is poisoning the planet and poisoning me. And it's going to poison my grandchildren. And it's going to cause all kinds of havoc on our descendants. And they're going to have to clean up this mess that we've made. So let's start now to reduce the amount of that that we're creating. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. fall morning. Good morning and happy Halloween weekend. Would this be Halloween weekend if Halloween's like early next week? It is. Yeah. Halloween weekend. I guess there are going to be a lot of parties and celebrations, but the real Halloween I think is Tuesday. Yes, that's true. Yeah. What's happening in your neck of the woods on Halloween? You live in the city in a busy neighborhood. Is there a lot of activity? Yeah. It depends year to year on our street specifically. A lot of times the activity tends to congregate around certain streets. A lot of times we get the traffic at like 4.30, all the little, little kids that just go right around their house. That's cute. But, you know, it's pretty quiet for trick-or-treaters. So I don't know. We might go to a friend's house where there's more action, but it's always really fun to see all the kids. I love Halloween. I love Halloween so much too. And now that we live out in a rural area and we're not really, we have a neighborhood, but it's very, very spread out. And we've never had a single trick-or-treater here at the farm, which kind of makes sense. So Halloween becomes a very quiet and moody night. I love it. I like to just sit and be in the environment. (laughs) And if candy wrappers and things are something that stresses you out, we understand. (laughs) And we did a whole episode (laughs) about that last year that you can find. It's our Halloween bonus episode. We like to chat about holidays and all of the waste and consumerism associated with them. Not too much. We don't mean to beat that topic to death, but that is something that we have discussed many times on this podcast and something that we are in our real lives always thinking about. And Halloween is no exception. And that's a fun episode. If you want to go back and listen to it, we will link it in our show notes. So yeah, and speaking of listening to podcasts, Emma, I've really been enjoying the one you told me about. It's called Discover Ag. Yeah. I've listened to a few of them now. And since the two hosts themselves are legitimate, real-time, big-time lady farmers, I think it's 
one our audience would really like to know about. Yes, definitely. Natalie and Tara are great. They're the hosts of Discover Ag. And Natalie is a cattle rancher from Nebraska, along with her husband. And Tara is a fifth generation dairy farmer and environmental consultant from New Mexico. So they are, as you said, real deal, big time farmers. 2021, they got together and they have since then created and launched an online course in a community called Elevate Ag. And they also have this podcast that they started called Discover Ag. Yeah. And so every week on this podcast, they share these really fun and informative conversations where they give their professional farming opinions on a mix of facts and trending news articles that they've read and they come back to discuss together, which is really interesting and fun. And ag-related entertainment, you know, they talk about documentaries and films and all kinds of stuff. And I really love that they bring this much needed young female perspective to the food and agriculture space because it tends to be dominated by older male voices. So we really think you'll enjoy this one. Discover Ag. Yes. Find Natalie and Tara wherever you get your podcasts. Probably the same place you can get this one. (laughs) So while we're recommending things, we've also got a great book that we also highly recommend, which we'll be talking about in this episode because we are talking to Eve Schaub, who is the author of Year of No Garbage. You guys, this book is so great and so funny. And Year of No Garbage can sound a little, as it did to me, sounds a little, okay, another book about no garbage, but you have no idea. Eve is a internationally published author and humorist. And in 2014, she wrote Year of No Sugar. She wrote Year of No Clutter in 2017. And then her third family memoir, I love that she calls it a family memoir, is Year of No Garbage. And that was published this year, 2023. So during the year of this project, which she and her family began in 2020 of all times to do such a thing, Eve learns some startling things. She learns that modern recycling is broken and single stream recycling is a lie. She learns that flushable wipes aren't flushable and compostables aren't compostable, that plastic drives climate change, fosters racism, and is poisoning the environment and our bodies at alarming rates as microplastics are being found everywhere from the top of Mount Everest to the placenta of unborn babies. So yeah, the experience revealed some really grim realities that we might not want to hear. But as Emma said, somehow she makes it easier to absorb because her gift of humor is what gets the point across and makes it stick. I told her, I said, I didn't know how I could be so horrified and laughing at the same time. (laughs) It's really quite a remarkable achievement. Yeah, (laughs) it's really a gift because this is information that is so hard to hear and so much easier to ignore, but it needs to be heard and understood. And if there's a way to make it easier to hear and understand, I don't know how else to do it besides just really artfully crafting it with humor. I mean, isn't that what all comedy is, mom? It's the same as tragedy. Like they're so related (laughs) at the core. Yeah. I mean, look at Shakespeare. Exactly. Yeah. And how she weaves it into their real life family experience and literally makes it funny. So yeah, y'all going to love this one. This is Eve Schaub, author of Year of No Garbage. Enjoy.
name is Eve Schaub. I'm a writer and an author, and I perform experiments on my family so that I can write about it. My most recent experiment is called Year of No Garbage, in which I persuaded my family to go zero waste for an entire calendar year and not throw anything away. Oh my gosh, that sounds impossible. How did you convince your family to get on board with that? And yeah, just tell us about the thought process of deciding to do it. Was there an aha moment? Was there some enlightening event that said, I have to do this? It comes back to that I'm a very stubborn but optimistic person by nature. And so I always feel that if I have an idea to do something, something that I think is a good thing to do, there must be a way. There's no such thing as impossible, right? I just have to look hard enough. And so that's the frame of mind that I go into my projects with. My very first project was called Year of No Sugar. And I convinced my family to go for an entire calendar year without eating any added sugar in our food, which was pretty much as hard as it sounds. It was extremely difficult. What? I can't even believe that. (laughs) And at that time, my kids were much younger. And so there was a very different dynamic. You know, they were ages six and 11. So there was that whole like, kids need sugar thing going on. And we found out that wasn't true at all. But Then I had the idea to do another book called Year of No Clutter, and that was something very dear to my heart because I come from a family of hoarders, and I feel that need to keep everything, and I fight with it in my brain, and I was realizing that I was starting to lose that fight, and I was keeping stuff, and it was becoming destructive, so I spent an entire year trying to sort of pick apart that mentality and figure it out and also work with my family, but it was a very personal project to me. And so by the time I came around to this idea of going for a year without throwing anything away, I'd been thinking about it for some time. I brought it up every once in a while to my family, and at this point, they were really wary because they knew how hard these projects were. The sugar project was really not difficult at all because my husband was like, yeah, sure, we'll try it, whatever. And he had no idea. And the kids were small enough that they really didn't realize that they could object. They were just like, this is what we're doing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So by the time I got to Year of No Garbage, now my older daughter is in college. My younger daughter is in high school. And I got much more of pushback. And so it took a little doing. One of the things I had to do was promise that this was my last family experiment. I would not torture them any further after this. Uh Uh-oh. What if you have (laughs) another idea? Yeah. (laughs) Then I think that it'll just be on me. It'll be something that I personally do, and I won't inflict it upon them as well. But I always feel like with every project that we've done, the component that it's not just me is, is one of the most interesting parts, that we get so many different vantage points, you know? from myself, my husband, who, you know, he likes the environment. It's nice, but he's not (laughs) obsessed like I am. And my kids, you know, they have their own interests and they're, they're off on their own, following their own paths. So it's, it's always very interesting. One of the best parts about Year of No Sugar was that I encouraged Greta, my older daughter, to keep a journal. And I included, with her permission, excerpts from that journal of the year. It's one of the best parts because she talks about what it really was like from the vantage point of being an 11-year-old. How much buy-in do you require from your family? Does it turn into you like forcing them or are they allowed to like not do it as much as you? I guess in the past, <laughs> these these different projects. I'm just, yeah. What's the level of buy-in, I guess, required to like proceed as a unit? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's very important to me that we're all on the same page, you know, at a certain level. Like, it's not just like we're pretending or, you know, we've learned to set up the parameters so that it's very clear what the buy-in is and what level, you know, for example, my husband's a photographer. And so he has his studio across the street from our house. And we made the agreement that his studio would not be part of the project. And that was very important because as a photographer, of course, you're using film, you're using all kinds of things that have no ability to be recycled or dealt with in any way. There's all kinds of stuff like that. You know, I, you know, you think of all the things that are plastic that you never really thought about. And, and so film and, and a lot of the printing out papers they use have plastic coatings and all kinds of things. So yeah, in particular, I made sure to be very specific about what being part of the project meant. And then one thing I started from the very first book was I said, if there's ever a moment when you make a mistake or cheat, quote unquote, you know, just tell me about it. There's no repercussions. It's just part of the project. And I want to incorporate it into the overall narrative and, and talk about it. What does this mean? Why does this happen? You know, like, what are the ramifications of that? And so that seemed to work very well. Wow. Well, let me say that, you know, having read the book, I just want to say, I don't know your kids, but they're fantastic sports. <laughs> <laughs> I really admire their spirit of adventure and, you know, willingness to do this crazy thing that, you know, started out saying it sounds impossible. And we have had several conversations on the Good Dirt podcast about zero waste and, and the zero waste movement. And, you know, just about everybody ends up saying, zero waste is an impossible goal. We can't really do it. So we just do the best we can. And here you are going, no, no garbage, <laughs> no garbage. <laughs> I'm very literal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like defined parameters. And, you know, in, in this respect, uh, it, it helped in terms of the project to say, Boom. You know, yes, there were exceptions. There was the one major exception was what I called the health and safety garbage. So if we need a Band-Aid, you know, if somebody's using feminine products, all of which, you know, all the normal feminine products contain plastic and there's no good way to deal with that except sending it to the landfill. You know, the, the agreement was always we try our very best. But then, you know, if you need a Band-Aid, you get a Band-Aid. Right. So as if the project wasn't daunting enough, and we'll get into all that. But you happened to pick 2020 as the year. <laughs> so you kicked off in January and things were going swimmingly, right? <laughs> well, of course, it was very challenging from day one. In fact, I have a very funny chapter in the book where I'm encountering a small mutiny and, you know, they're, they're, we try to go to the supermarket and there's like nothing we can buy. It's ridiculous. And they are so frustrated and hungry and they get a little mad and we have this little squabble. And I'm like, do you want to quit? It's day two. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, no, we don't want to quit. But it's, it's really, really hard. And we're mad about that. And I'm like, I know, I know it's hard. And that's why this project is so important. If it were easy, it wouldn't mean anything. Well, I can't even imagine that scene. I mean, well, I have imagined that scene like shopping and, you know, because I'm kind of a plastic free geek myself. And, you know, I walk through the store and I'm, I'm going like, this just so overwhelming. And you just I'm putting myself in the position of looking at a year of not being able to buy anything with plastic. I, I can just imagine this sense of frustration and overwhelm. And yeah, we can't do this. But you did. You went on and did it. And that was January. That was at the very beginning. 
And the more we got further on into our project, you know, we did all the usual things that you would think about first. Like, okay, so instead of using Kleenex, we'll get hankies. And instead of using paper towel, I'll have my reusable rags that I make out of, you know, old sheets and towels and things like that. And so, you, and, and we have a compost pile and we're lucky because we live in the country. So that's easy to do. And so, you know, instead of just sometimes putting stuff into the compost bucket, we would all, we got much more aggressive about these things. And then any organic material, I take the hair out of my hairbrush, that's going in the compost. You know, we had to be much more thoughtful. And so we're doing all these things. And then I start exploring all the local stores. And I learned very quickly that I go to the big stores like my supermarket, which is a big chain. And you ask them, can I bring my own container? Can I do some special thing? And they'll say no right away. That's just the answer is always no. They don't want to deal with you. Especially in 2020. No, no, you're absolutely right. In 2020. So at the beginning, that was possible. Tell us about how you kind of scoped out your alternatives you know, in January and February, and you kind of had it going. And so tell us about that. And then just when I started to get into a groove, and I felt like, hey, I, I'm getting the hang of this. I found the butcher who will let me bring my own container and the deli, I can go get deli meats. And I, you know, the health food store has certain bulk options that bring my own containers everywhere. Of course, I was driving all over creation. Again, I live in the country, right? So that's the downside of a tremendous amount of time. You know, I'm, I'm emitting fumes of driving my car around. But but again, I'm very literal. And so I was focused on one thing and one thing only, which was limiting the amount of packaging that came into my house. I found a lovely Italian grocery that would sell me bread that just came in paper and I could have my cheese wrapped in paper. So I was starting to feel like I was getting this like, all right, I, maybe I could actually pull this off and really find these solutions. And then a little thing happened called the pandemic. And everything shut down. All these beautiful small stores that I was accessing that were locally owned and they knew me and they were like, yeah, sure, you can bring your own container. They either closed entirely or they said, I'm sorry, but we can't have anything coming in here. I mean, they just didn't want any containers. And, you know, you go to the supermarket, they didn't even want to see your bags from home anymore. We had a bag ban that had just started to be implemented at my supermarket. And, you know, immediately those plastic bags came right back out like they had never left. <laughs> and that, you know, all of a sudden I was like hit by this overwhelming sense of I got to sit down and process and reassess. Like, is it even OK for us to do this project? Like, is this offensive? Because here I am obsessing about, you know, why? Washington foil and tying rubber bands back together and, <laughs> you know, trying to, you know, all these micro details. And yet people are dying. And maybe this isn't okay beyond the just the practical logistics of it. And so my husband and I sat down and I write about this in the book, we had a very, you know, deep conversation. And we came out of it saying, life is never perfect. And there's always going to be reasons why you can't do a project or attempt some lofty goal. And, and that's life. So we should keep going. And number one, it was a great distraction. It was a great thing to focus on. When really, we're here, we're stuck. And we're safe because we, we're lucky we have a place to be and, and we're not, you know, we both work from home. So we were fortunate in that regard. But of course, you know, getting away from the anxiety of that time period was a very good thing. So if we can focus on this, which is a wonderful thing, it's not more important than the pandemic, but it is really important. And I knew that once we came out of the pandemic, people would go right back to talking about climate change and the environment 
And, you know, and now we see the burgeoning conversation about disposable plastic, single use plastic really starting to explode. I was thinking this issue has it, its time once the pandemic has receded. And I do think that that's what's starting to happen. Yeah, well, I want to say that anybody would have understood you're postponing this until another time because, gosh sake, it was a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and the other factor was that my older daughter, who had been away at school, school was canceled. So she came home. And then her boyfriend, who was in school with her, his parents live in Ireland, he couldn't go home. So he came with her. And they both stayed with us. So we're now producing even more non-garbage, you know, whatever we wanted to call this material, we're producing for five people instead of three. Originally, my daughter was going to do the project in New York City, where she was living at the time, and do it separately. And I thought, oh, that'll be really interesting, because the way you do this project in the country, there's probably a lot of things that are going to be very different about how you do that in the city. But in the end, they lived with us for the rest of that year. And that turned out to be a wonderful silver lining for us was that we got to spend so much time with them. And they got to be much more invested in the project right here at home. Wow. (laughs) That's quite a situation. Part of the really brilliance of this book, and I think I told you this in an earlier email, was that you are presenting all of this very, very sobering information, but you've got us laughing all the way through. So I just, I want to commend you on that, the way that you delivered it, because it helps us, it helps us absorb it. I mean, we can read this stuff, we can read this data and statistics and, eh, you know, just no. I'm not, you know, can't deal with it right now, but you had me really going with all these situations and all the predicaments and the conversations that you had with your family. So I I think that's the best compliment I could possibly ask for is that the book is horrifying and hilarious at the same time. (laughs) Yes. I, I think that's that's what I was going for, is I want this to be entertaining. I want people to have a good time reading it. I want them to relate to the stories of my family, trying to do this really crazy thing. And in the process, you're going to learn a whole bunch of information too. But that's, you know, like along the way. And I, I, I firmly believe that storytelling is the best way to communicate information. Absolutely. And the fact that we were in the middle of the pandemic, which is also an indicator of the times we're in, all this crazy stuff happening in this, you know, in my opinion, and probably yours too, this problem of waste is a huge part of it, way more than we're admitting, I think, out there in the wider world. The way things are, the extent of the waste problem and what it's doing out there and that in the setting of the pandemic. But I've heard it described as an epidemic of silence. Ah, that's very interesting. I think... Anyone who reads my book, I guarantee you're going to find out information that you did not already know about what happens to the things that we are no longer need, that leave our house and go off. And we don't think about them anymore. We call it garbage. But what I like to tell people is that one of the realizations I came to early on is that the garbage is no one thing. There's no definition for garbage. Garbage is anything that we just don't happen to want anymore and don't know where else it could go. It's kind of like weeds are plants that are growing in a place you don't want. Like they're still plants, right? And so this material that was in our home that maybe we were done with, I was committed to finding out like, well, it's still material and where could it go where someone would appreciate it and use it? And so I started from that premise every day with every object is that somewhere someone wants this and can use it. 
And so I started out very small, of course, at the beginning with materials going, okay, I don't know where these wine corks are going to go. I don't know where these silica gel packets are going to go. I don't know where these different plastics are going to go that are not numbered because we took our garbage container and we put it away in the garage and it sat there empty and lonely for the entire rest of the year. But our recycling container, which we have picked up once a week, like a lot of people, single stream recycling, everything that was putting in overtime, you know, all the usual suspects and more. All of a sudden, we were so highly motivated to be like, oh, yeah, check that plastic. Is it the resin identification code one through seven? Because they'll take it. And that's the resin identification code is that triangle with the chasing arrows that many people are familiar with. But what we were to learn later on is that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be recycled in any way. But at the beginning of the project, we're putting it out by the curb, and I've got all these little glass jars, little mason jars, and I'm putting my, you know, all the different things, little bits of plastic, little bits of metal, where will it go? I don't know. Then I started accumulating more, and I created this, I called it the Super Awesome Recycling Center in the corner of my kitchen, and suddenly I had boxes and baskets, and it started getting bigger. And then it started very quickly to accelerate and become really overwhelming because I realized I couldn't, especially once the pandemic hit, I could not feed my family without buying plastics that did not have any chance of being able to be put in the single stream recycling. I was, when we began the project, I thought, oh, well, most plastics have a number, right? So how many could really not go in single stream? Oh my God, it's so much. And I couldn't really have understood how much it was until I stopped and held on to it and looked at it. So here I am with my kitchen and my awesome recycling center, and it's now reached epic proportions, and I've got piles, and they're so big, they're starting to cascade onto the floor, and we're having trouble getting to the refrigerator, and it's hard to cook, and my husband's going, if... um what are we going to do about all this material and I'm like I'm working on it (laughs) oh my gosh and so you know we started out with all the usual stuff and then I progressed on to okay so what comes next what are the options that most people aren't aware of you know sort of extreme recycling and so I started looking into there's something called the Carton Council, which is an industry organization, and they will accept your cartons, like your milk cartons, which are gable top cartons, or your aseptic cartons, which are the shelf stable, like you might buy chicken broth or soup in them. All of those, they will accept them, and they tell you they will recycle them, but you have to put them in a box, clean and dry, and mail them to one of four different locations around the United States. Now, is this sustainable? I'm not so sure. And on top of that, you're paying. You're, you're paying the money to ship it. But then I thought, well, at least it's going somewhere where someone will take care of it and do something good with it. it. Turned out later on, I found out that was not necessarily the case. And then we also looked into places like TerraCycle. TerraCycle, a lot of folks might be familiar with. They're based in New Jersey. You know, their motto is to eliminate garbage. Uh, they, they don't believe there's any such thing as garbage either. And so I loved this idea. They have programs that are free. They have programs that you pay for. The problem with the programs that are free is that most of them are full and you have to get on a waiting list. And I was never able during our year of no garbage to get in on any of the free return programs, recycling programs. But I did sign up for the, uh, you buy a box and they mail it to you and you fill it up and you mail it back to them. Again, this was something that I thought, well, this is like plastic packaging that can't go anywhere else. TerraCycle is promising me we will do something good with it. Again, 
I would find out later on that was uh, not necessarily the case. It, it wasn't such a sure thing. But these were the kinds of things that we looked into. Also, plastic film recycling bin at your supermarket. People may have noticed this bin. It's usually near like where you return cans. And you can, and I found out you can put not just your plastic bags from the supermarket, but any kind of plastic film like bread bags, bags for ice, dry cleaning bags, any kind of stretchy plastic film, which actually turned out to be quite a lot. So I started doing that. So I was investigating more and more things. And I, I did feel like, hey, there are people out there who really want this material. Unfortunately, later on, the more I learned, I found out that that was not necessarily the case. And the reason for that is that there's no sheriff in town. There's no one making sure that all these different organizations are actually doing the things that they say they're going to do. There's no supervision. And I'll add that as much as we hope that there are ways to use these things down the road, there really isn't. I'd say that's true only of plastic. Everything else, there's somewhere good for it to go. If you look hard enough, there's somebody out there who wants it, or it's a material that can break down. Plastic does not break down. And I think that's a fact that a lot of people don't realize. You know, you could put a plastic bottle out in your yard. It's never going to break down and return to the earth and like, you know, separate into its various building blocks. No, it doesn't break down. What I found out is that it breaks up and it turns into microplastics. And those microplastics then go out into the world and they harm the environment, they harm the wildlife, and then they get into our food system and they come back to harm us. So this was something that I found out much later on in the year. Okay, going back a little bit to how you decided to start this, you talked a little bit about the year of no clutter and why that was important to you. And I would think in this group, why a year of no garbage is important to you sort of an obvious, but I wonder if there's anything else there, like earlier in your life, you know, have you always been an environmental activist? Have, has there, there been any other like projects like this that you've attempted? Had it always sort of been something that you've thought about? Or I don't know, I guess I'm just more interested in, in a little bit more of the impetus behind really committing to this specific project and how that showed up earlier in your life, if at all? Yeah, that's a really good question. Because it's true, it does go way back. I mean, I write in the book that I remember being a little kid back when in where we lived, there was no recycling. And instead, there was a big black garbage bag that was under the sink in the cabinet under the sink. And everything went in there. And I remember being a little kid and looking at, you know, all the cans and the cardboard and the paper and the food scraps and everything going into this one bin and wondering what happens next. Even as a little kid going, it's probably not good. Whatever happens to this material, I just have this funny thinking feeling that it can't be a good thing. And this is, you know, I'm at the age where I'm watching Sesame Street and Oscar the Grouch is on singing about how much he loved trash. And, you know, I write in the book that the things he sings about are not the things that were in my trash. He sang about holy sneakers and rusty trombone parts. And, and I, I was like, this, that's not what's in my trash. What's in my trash is all this other stuff, you know, basically packaging for food. I mean, I think that's true of most people that that's the vast majority of the stuff that's going into their trash container. But even as a kid, I'm thinking, this is a strange dynamic. This is weird. And it kind of 
stuck with me. And then as a college student, I lived in Ithaca, New York, where they were instituting a brand new curbside recycling program. And I was like, woohoo, we're on the forefront. I feel really progressive. And there were so many rules and I kept doing it wrong. And I was like, you know, if they want people to recycle, they're going to have to make it a whole lot easier than this. And I was always very interested in the environment. But like most people, you're interested, but you also have a life to live. You know, you also go out in the world and you have to interact with the culture as it exists. And I think that's one of the biggest barriers that we all experience today is you go into the coffee shop and they're putting your coffee into a disposable cup that's lined with plastic. And then they put that boiling hot beverage in and you're getting a lovely cup of boiling hot microplastics along with your coffee. And I think, you know, well, well, what else am I supposed to do? I want coffee. Our culture doesn't accommodate any alternative. And I think the reason that we don't accommodate alternatives is because we have not yet become aware of just how bad this material is, not only for the environment, not only because it causes climate change and it hurts the animals and the tortoises have plastic straws in their noses, but because it's showing up in our bodies now. And this is the thing that's coming about. You're seeing every day a new study coming out saying, look, we found a new place in the human body where there are microplastics. And we're all eating five grams of plastic a week, which is the equivalent of the amount of plastic in a credit card. I mean, I find this horrifying. And, you know, I think for a long time, people thought plastic is inert. It's not harmful. I mean, it's just nothing, right? But in fact, we're starting to find out that that is not the case. And when you realize what plastic is made of, you can understand why that's true, because it's made of fossil fuels and toxic chemicals. And when we say toxic chemicals, what do we mean? We mean heavy metals, we mean persistent organic pollutants, we mean endocrine disruptors, we mean carcinogens, we mean fertility inhibitors. So all of those things are coming into our bodies And our body often doesn't have a great way to process it. So it goes into different organs and gets stuck. You know, the scientists are now finding microplastics not only in human blood, but in the brain, in lungs, in our liver, in the placenta of unborn babies, in our poop, but also in the very first poop that a newborn baby creates. So the baby in the womb is getting microplastics. This is a horrifying situation. And I think everyone can agree that none of us want plastic in our bodies. I agree with you. I think this is the next big wave of awareness. You know, we've been through the turtle thing. (laughs) You know, people have seen the pictures and the the straws and and how horrible it is in, in the ocean, the marine life. And that's like in everybody's common knowledge? (laughs) Well, I think a lot of it is regional. You know, it depends. What are the people around you talking about? What are the people around you? How do they, what's their normal? So I'm lucky because I live in Vermont and it's a relatively very progressive community. And so when I go to my butcher and say, I want to bring my own container so that you can put the meat in and I can take it home without creating any further waste, plastic waste, single use waste, He knows why I'm asking that. (laughs) Whereas if I were somewhere else, I'm not sure. They might look at me really funny and go, why? To reframe that thing about the straw, you know, most people probably realize that the plastic straw is not a good thing and it hurts marine animals, but not enough people are willing to do anything about it or sit there in the restaurant and refuse the straw. They're just like, oh yeah, well, what can I do about it? That kind of thing. 
Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. Eve, this is a total tangent side line, but I don't know if you've seen Barbie yet, but mom and I saw Barbie last week. I have not seen it. It's unbelievable. I can't stop thinking about it. And I really want to have this conversation. I've been thinking about this so much. I want to like write about it. I don't know how to, and I think you'll understand when you see it. I don't know how to like sort of reckon, like hold these two things together where this phenomenon of Barbie and just like the beauty. I mean, the movie was just so beautiful. The beauty of the the plastic thing. It's so beautiful and so nostalgic and it's so meaningful and so much about it is so meaningful. And the, the movie, the creators do an amazing job of, of making it that way. And there's no denying that, but it's also, it's just so weird that at the at the core of it, it's like, it's this plastic thing. Like so many toys. I was in an airport the other day and I was passing the Lego store. And I was like, oh, Legos. And it made me think of my nephew who loves Legos. And they went, and they're all plastic. (laughs) You know, we have all these things that we're very fond of. You know, plastics have been around long enough for us to have these, you know, attachments and sentimentality to certain things. That's going to be another thing. But I think the best place that we can start is with the low-hanging fruit of single-use disposable plastics. You know, I'm not trying to take away everybody's Legos and everybody's Barbie dolls. I think down the road, could there be a different solution to these toys that they could be made from something else? Maybe, you know, and I'm also not trying to take away plastics that, you know, are extremely beneficial. For example, the plastics that are used in medicine. But I do think that as a society, we're so firmly entrenched. We're so surrounded on all sides by plastic. And it's something that we cannot fully comprehend until you try to do without it. It's not really going to be practical to try and say, I'm removing plastic from every aspect of my life. I mean, plastic was the Darth Vader of our year, I came to realize. And I did not go into it, the year of no garbage, realizing that plastic would really be the nemesis. Perhaps I should have but I didn't. I was coming around in our year 
And I was getting so frustrated because I was calling up companies and asking questions about different kinds of plastics. And there's so many of them. You know, there's not just seven kinds of plastic, of course. There's tens of thousands of different kinds of plastic. And these categories, they're only so useful. And so I would call places, I sent emails, and frequently the places that are using these materials for packaging, they don't even know what's in it. They don't even know what can be reasonably done with it. So I started to realize like, okay, there's a lot of unreliable information. There's a lot of misinformation. I would call one company and, and they'd tell me one thing. I'd call a different company. They'd tell me something completely different. So what I realized was I had to find a real ultimate source, somebody that was really trustworthy. And that's when I was very fortunate to happen upon a college class. I got an advertisement, you know, I don't know, I must have seen it on social media, that Bennington College, which is not that far away from me, was having a Zoom class that they were offering in the fall, and it was called Beyond Plastics 101. And so I signed on to take this class, and it's led by Professor Judith Ank, who is a former regional administrator of the EPA under Barack Obama. And she led this class, and she started from A and went all the way to Z, and I learned the real truth about plastic. And what was so scary was that there's so much that we're not being told. There's so much that's not being talked about. That's the epidemic of silence that we were talking about earlier. You know, the fact that plastic comes from fossil fuels, the fact, the fact that every step of the way in the creation of plastic, from the fracking, to the production facilities, to the transport, to the disposal, every step of the way, you're emitting the emissions that cause climate change. If plastic were a country, it would be the number five emitter of the emissions that cause climate change. That's enormous. And we're not even getting into all the other ramifications of the toxic chemicals and the fact that these facilities are being cited in communities of color, communities that are low income. So, you know, you've got racism in there. You've got classism in there. I mean, there's so many things that are bad about plastic. It's like we don't even have enough time to talk about it at all. I learned the really awful truth. That's when I went, oh my gosh, okay, it's far worse than I ever imagined. But now, now I know. There's something wonderful, as depressing as the information may be, there's something really wonderful about certainty and being able to proceed and say, now that I know the truth, what are we going to do about it? And so, you know, we can talk about how we live now, now that our year of no garbage is over too. Oh, I do want to get to that. I wanted to comment on before you found your class and, and even afterwards, I really admired and really loved how you became such a sleuth and you got on the phone with these people and you asked them questions that, as you say, even they didn't know the answers to them sometimes. And you would call them back and you would call them back again or email <laughs> or, and you got to know these people by first, first name. Yes. Um, and you know, what about this and where does this go? And that's the kind of digging it takes to get to the bottom of this stuff. And that's the kind of digging that, you know, not many people are doing, not to the extent you have done it. And then, and I think you're right that it's not, it's really not reasonable for the average person to do this. For me, I made it my full-time job. Most people can't do that. It's not reasonable. You can't, you, you know, call these companies and get on the phone and they put you on hold. That's and what you they're don't counting on. They're counting on you don't have time to figure out because we're just going to keep going with status quo and you're going to assume that you're protected by your government, by the safety regulations, that everything that we say is being recycled really is being recycled, you know, and none of that is true. This is all generally regarded as safe, which means we don't really know. And that's, that's shocking to me. 
we all have the oh well they wouldn't they wouldn't let you use this packaging around food if we knew it was bad for people Huh. <laughs> we don't know, but we don't know. And you know that what you just said, the generally regarded as safe, it's, you'll see the acronym G-R-A-S on things. What sometimes there are products in the, in the United States that will say that on them, but these things have been done away with in other countries. They do feel like there's enough evidence to not say that they're safe. So the U.S. Is, has different standards from other countries about what is generally regarded as safe because there's a lot at stake. It's a lot of money at stake. And you've got corporations. Remember, this is fossil fuels, so this is big oil. So there are limitless budgets for lobbyists, for you know campaigns of misinformation to show up and just argue and argue and argue. No, no, this is all safe. It's not, you, you can't prove that it's not safe. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have we don't have the data to show that it's That's right. not right. safe. So this is straight out of the playbook of say the cigarette companies. You know, oh well, we don't have enough information. You know, so how many decades can we drag this on for before everybody goes? This is ridiculous. Clearly, cigarettes are bad for you. <laughs> we all know it, and we all know that plastics are not good for us as well. I think intuitively. Like when, you know, you put plastic in the microwave and, and your food is in it and you're like, this, this is probably bad. It is very, very bad. Please, everyone, do not microwave your food in plastic ever. Don't microwave popcorn in those bags because they put chemicals on the inside of the bag that are toxic and terrible for you. And don't wash your plastics in your dishwasher, like Tupperware. Even if it says you can put it in the middle rack, don't do it. Because what it does is when plastics change temperature, it causes them to release more of the toxic chemicals that went into their makeup. So it just, it makes a bad situation worse. So it's going into your food. It's, yeah, don't use plastic water bottles. Now that we're here, something that you said at the beginning of this sort of discussion is that making the distinction between the single-use disposables and like everything else. And we're kind of on this like everything else train, which is fascinating and horrifying. But I kind of had a light bulb go off when you said that a few minutes ago. Like, I think the only way to go at this is is actually because it's so vast is like piecemeal. And we just have to start with the single use disposables. And that's kind of the obvious ones that like we can obviously live without that. We have for millennia. <laughs> so yeah, I just wanted to say that, that it's a totally different category. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes people get like panicked. You're taking away my plastic, you know, and it's like, don't worry, don't worry. There's plenty. <laughs> and for example, when we take away, like if you have a plastic bag ban in your community or maybe a styrofoam ban for takeout containers, for example, life goes on. Oh my gosh, they find alternatives. You remember your bags or you buy a bag for five cents that's made of paper. You know, it, that's the thing is that We've had plastic for long enough to get really attached to it and for it to infiltrate every part of our lives. But at the same time, it's not all that long ago, only, you know, maybe not quite a hundred years that we had alternatives for absolutely everything. And we can, that's what I did whenever I was looking for an alternative to plastic, I would look to the past. So instead of my plastic Tupperware collection, I got out, you know, my Pyrex wear, and I actually had a couple of pieces of of Pyrex refrigerator dishes that had covers, that they're all glass. And I'd gotten them from my grandmother. 
when she died. And so there's always an alternative. And we're not trying to take away people's cars, which are 50% plastic. We're not trying to take away their glasses, because I need my glasses. Thank you very much. But, you know, our computers, our phones, I mean, we're not getting away from this anytime soon. But we can start. And we have started. We've started with things like the bag bans. In New York, they just passed a skip the stuff. Are you aware of this bill where now when you get takeout, they are not supposed to put in all of that extra crap where, you know, they give you all this silverware and they give you a whole bunch of sachets of condiments. They're not supposed to do that anymore unless you ask for it. Now, of course, enforcement is going to be another thing and education because you've got so many different places doing takeout food and maybe they don't even know about this new law, but it's a start and we can do that. Do you think most people know about like don't heat your food in the microwave in plastic because think of all those those meals. I love the Amy's basil pesto pasta because it's like I love Amy's as a brand. I'm like, oh, it's organic. And I like I ate those a lot last summer when I was doing that class, mom. <laughs> like almost every day I would like microwave one of those things. I'm like, uh microwave it in plastic? It's like a meal, like the I think the container was like cardboard or something, but obviously lined in plastic and it had a thing. It's film. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, even me, who has this podcast, just do to do because it was Amy's brand like box. But what I do if I end up getting a meal and, and I'm like, oh, crap, it came in plastic. I'll actually take it out of that container. Or if it has a plastic film, I'll take the plastic film off. I don't follow the instructions. I'm like, oh, hell no. You know? <laughs> and actually what I found is that it's fine. It cooks, it heats up just fine. Do you think that they write those instructions so that people will think you need that plastic film so that the company can keep making it that way because the people making the plastic film want to sell these storage containers? I mean, it's like dominoes. You can get really paranoid. You know, you're not paranoid if they're really out to get you. you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think this gets into, you know, the fact that the fossil fuel companies see the writing on the wall. They know that people are switching to electric cars, that all, all this stuff is happening. One of the most chilling things to me Eve, in the book was when you brought out the fact that because the fossil fuel industry is seeing the wave of things being replacing fossil fuels, they're amping up their production of more, say, maybe the everyday plastic use. And we're beginning to see this. So talk about that a little bit. That was, to me, the big light bulb that went off in the book. Yeah. The way that I like to describe that is that people will say, oh, well, you know, or especially corporations and the people who are making these plastic products, they'll say, well, people want this. There's demand. And I would argue back that the production and the amping up of plastic production is not being driven by demand currently. It's being driven by supply. So they are forcing this onto the market because they see this as the new alternative plan B for when, you know, they're not selling so much fossil fuel for things like transportation. So they, by their own projections in the industry, their plan is to triple plastic production by 2050. Triple. Triple. You know, I don't know anyone who wants triple the amount of plastic in their life compared to what they have now. Most people want less plastic, if they think about it at all. So clearly this is what they're aiming for. You go to the supermarket and every time I go to the supermarket, I find more things in plastic that were not in plastic before. In particular, one thing that really gets me is when I go to the organic produce section and everything is swaddled in plastic trays and plastic wrap 
and plastic, everything, because they're trying, I get why they're trying to separate it very clearly from the non-organic produce. However, (laughs) it really feels counterproductive because I don't need my lemons to be wrapped in plastic. They already have a lovely cover already on them, just like avocados and bananas. Nature's figured this out already, and we're just messing it up. (laughs) So you can make different choices and you can ask. I always say, be polite, but just ask, can I have this? but without the plastic? Can I get this product without the plastic? You know, can I buy my ketchup in a glass bottle instead of a plastic bottle? Can I buy my eggs in a cardboard carton instead of a plastic carton? And that's one small thing that we can do. It's personal responsibility and it only goes so far. I'm not going to personally solve the plastic waste crisis by buying a bamboo toothbrush, but it's one small thing that you can do that puts in your vote as a consumer to say, this is what I want. I don't want all that plastic crap that's never going away, that is poisoning the planet and poisoning me. And it's going to poison my grandchildren. And it's going to cause all kinds of havoc on our descendants. And they're going to have to clean up this mess that we've made. So let's start now to reduce the amount of that that we're creating. That reminds me of another big learning from your book for me. When things are incinerated, first of all, it's a bad idea to incinerate so many things because it releases this particulate in the air, but it only reduces the volume of something by two thirds. Instead of this thing- It doesn't go away. (laughs) You have a third of this thing, even more concentrated toxins. Yes, in toxic ash. And then what do they do with that? They put it in the landfill. (laughs) Wow. Where it can, you know, leak out in the leachate and re-enter our environment in the the water. So this has been pretty many years ago. We were advertising the bamboo toothbrushes that we were selling in our marketplace. And, you know, the, the caption said something like, every plastic toothbrush that was ever manufactured still exists. And someone wrote in the comments, oh, what about the ones that were incinerated? Like people think this stuff just goes away. I think I said something about particulate in response, you know, but now I know that a third of that toothbrush is still laying around and it's toxic and it will never, ever go away. We might say, oh, yes, it will in 5,000 years or whatever. But okay, folks, that's never. That's never. (laughs) That's right. It's effectively never. And that brings us around really nicely to the fact that you're going to start hearing more and more about something called chemical recycling. And chemical recycling is not a good thing. They're trying to get this recognized as like, ooh, isn't it wonderful? Recycling is inherently good. Chemical recycling is burning plastic. And there's just nothing good about it. It's all bad. You're creating toxic ash. You're creating toxic fumes in the air. It is not a solution. It is not recycling. And they will call it by lots of different names. They'll call it pyrolysis. They'll call it waste to energy. All kinds of euphemisms to make it sound good. I list like 10 different names for it in the book. And I want to caution people to be very aware that the plastic industry, they're playing the long game. They're they're aware that if they say recycling, then people will go, oh, that's good. And then they'll go on with their busy lives and nothing will change. In fact, the only thing that will change is we'll get more and more plastic in our lives. And we'll feel good about it, but we shouldn't because we will continue to be poisoning the planet. Wow. So going back to where 
you said in the beginning of your experiment, you were looking at the recycling symbol on the plastics and one through seven was like, oh, okay, this is fine. You know, they take most of these plastics, no problem. We'll just recycle all of them. So tell us what kind of happened with that plan. Yeah. So I was going along blissfully putting plastics number one through seven into my large, you know, 96 gallon recycling bin and wheeling it out to the corner every week and only getting stressed about all the other plastics, you know, the hard plastic shells and, you know, the saran wrap that would show up sometimes on things and other plastics that just have no, no labeling whatsoever. Then I took Judith Inks Beyond Plastics 101 class and I discovered that the only plastics that are even having anything done to them at all in terms of recycling are plastics number one and two. And the reason for that is that plastic is not an inherently recyclable material. Any person who deals with material science will tell you this. It is because it's made of so many different things and you've got proprietary formulas and tens of thousands of different possible combinations and toxic chemicals that we talked about, it does not lend itself to being melted down and reformed. It's very difficult. It's messy. It's toxic. Also, when you have things that are made of recycled plastic, studies have shown that those plastics will leach the chemistry more readily than regular virgin-made plastics, and they also create more microplastics. So there's, you know, we want to think that recycling plastic is a good thing. It's, it's really not. It's not a material that we should try to recycle, but only ones and twos even make the attempt. So everything else is getting landfilled or incinerated, or worst of all, shipped overseas to be dumped on the landscapes of impoverished developing nations that do not have the infrastructure to deal with it. And if you watch the documentary, it's called The Story of Plastic, you will be horrified when you see that here we are, we're trying so hard to do the good thing, the right thing, recycle this material. But instead, What's happening to that very material that you have so meticulously washed and dried and put into the container and hauled out to the curb is that it is then being shipped overseas and dumped on the landscapes of Kenya, Myanmar, Vietnam, you name it. And the children are walking to school, kicking the stuff out of the way. They're playing in it. It's horrifying. Oh, wow. Can you tell us a story from the year that had a big impact on you? I mean, I'm, I mean, I know the whole thing was very, very impactful, but can you just crystallize it into some little story or incident or conversation that just stands out to you? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I mean, the book, I sort of feel like it's a compilation of all of the stories, but one that does particularly stand out to me, I talk about in the book. So we have cats. <laughs> oh, I love you this. You know this story. <laughs> Yeah. And I had made a couple of years ago these bean bags. You know, I'd sewed them on my sewing machine and I had gave them each a bean bag and I needed to stuff them with something. And this is pre-year of no garbage. And I just looked up online, you know, I need bean bag stuffing. And so I got this stuff in the mail and it was really not very I mean, it's all this shredded styrofoam and just meh. And I was like, oh, that's yucky, but you know, we're not gonna look at it, we're gonna sit on it. So I put it in there. And then fast forward to our year of no garbage, one of our cats had a little problem and had peed on one of these bean bags. And so, of course, I could take the cover off and wash it. But what about all of that disgusting chopped up pieces of styrofoam 
that were on the inside, they were all going to keep smelling bad, right? So I'm like, oh no, but I can't throw anything away. And this is pea-soaked styrofoam is not something anyone anywhere is ever, (laughs) ever, ever going to want. So we had our garbage container that was sitting all sad and lonely in the corner of our garage. And I'm like, all right, so we're we're putting it in there and we're going to put this with our health and safety garbage. That's the only thing that I could think to do. And so my husband and I went out and we were trying to effectively transfer all of this nasty styrofoam stuff. And there's little itty bitty, you know, we're trying and it's going everywhere. It is floating in the air and it's on the gravel driveway and it is sticking to my clothes and it's horrifying. And I'm just like, oh my God, what is this? It was like, you know, the material from hell. And and Steve and I started having an argument because he's like, this is terrible. This is, I'm like, yes, it is terrible, but I didn't invent this stuff. And I, you know, don't blame me. (laughs) (laughs) And we're finally, he had to go get a shovel, you know, because it, you know, all this crap in the driveway, he had to shovel it with gravel and just put it in on top. And then we're like, what if the bin falls over? And then it just, you know, then we'll have to move, you know, like (laughs) there's no solution to this. So, so we, we put some like, you know, gravel and dirt on top of it just to hold it down. And then I think we put a bungee cord to be like, we were paranoid that this was going to come apart and it would just ruin like the universe. That moment, Steve turns to me and he's like, this stuff is evil. And I'm like, it is. I mean, beyond Darth Vader, beyond, I don't know what to do with this. It was like, we came to this realization that this material was like, so bad. Like we were surely breathing little fibers of it. You know, it was going into the environment. We were trying to stop it. But of course, and I'm thinking, and we are paying attention. We are people who care. What about the whole rest of the world who's not even aware of how bad this stuff really is? And so it just struck me, this understanding of how bad this man-made material we made this. It's a magical material, but it's also diabolical. The promise of plastic, plastics make it possible. Yeah, but what's the downside? And that's the downside is that it's so bad in so many ways. You know, we've already talked about the fact that it's racist. We've talked about the fact that it's terrible for the environment. It's terrible for the animals. It's terrible for people. It's getting in our food. It's getting in our bodies. It's in our babies' bodies. Like, That's enough evidence, I think, to say we need to, as a culture, as a community, redefine normal and say, we don't want this. We want to limit this material's presence in our community as much as possible. Yes. And that reminds me of in the 90s. My kids grew up in the 90s, the big beanie baby boom, and you would collect them and they're called beanie babies. So I don't know. I never... I never thought, well, what's really in those? Beans. And so (laughs) fast forward. It's beans, obviously. Beans or rice or something. You know, it (laughs) sounds nice and rattly like, you know. So fast forward 25 years. We've got a bunch of these things lying around, left over. Then we get a puppy and like, oh, you know, we don't have any babies around. These make good puppy toys. And then two our horror when the puppies start tearing them apart, you get to see what's inside. It's millions of little, little tiny, the size of the head of a pen pieces of plastic. 
basically microplastics. Yep. And I just think about how many of those things are out in the world and how many of those things we collected for our kids and gave them as birthday presents and Christmas presents. They were the thing. I don't know if they still are. And guess what? Every single one of those tiny little pieces of plastic is still on the earth as we've been discussing. So yeah, I, I think that's pretty diabolical. But anyway, I think we should transition into how you are now, what life is like after your year of no plastic. How do you come back from that? And that was one of the things that made my family so wary about doing a project like this is because it's not only difficult when you do the project, the aftermath is also quite difficult because then you have to figure out, well, now what? How obviously life has to go on. And what do we do now? That, uh, that very same thing happened with Year of No Sugar. We went through an extensive period of, I don't know what to do now. I can't unlearn or unknow all the things that I learned and now know. But at the same time, I have to live in the world. And I can't be as totalitarian as I was during the course of our project, can I? You know, unless I want to be a hermit and go live in a cave, I have to go to the supermarket and I have to buy plastic that I now know there's nothing good. You know, if I want to buy cheese, I got to buy plastic. That's the reality. If I want to buy meat, there's so many things that you just cannot buy in our current contemporary culture without confronting the issue of non-recyclable plastic. And in fact, I should really just say plastic because I'm going to say all plastic is essentially not recyclable. So what we did was we said, all right, of course, we're going to try and avoid as much single-use disposable plastic as possible. We'll continue that. But then when we do have it, we're not going to play the game. We're not going to pretend this is recyclable or going anywhere good. I don't want my recycling ending up at some kid's playground in Kenya. So instead, I'm going to be honest about it, and I'm going to put it in the actual trash to go to the landfill. Maybe humanity will figure out a way to deal with this down the road. Hopefully, humans are very ingenious, and when they put their mind to something, I believe anything is possible. So maybe one day, the landfills will be where humans go to get all this wonderful material to reclaim to for new uses, and we'll know what to do with it. But for now, I don't want to buy into the lie anymore now that I know that it's a lie. So the only thing that we now throw away is single-use disposable plastic, and it's primarily food packaging. Because it is the stuff we cannot manage to live our lives without accumulating. Every other material, paper, metal, aluminum foil, cardboard, all the usual suspects, all of that has a good place to go can be recycled, is not poisoning you or the planet. <laughs> the recycling rates are very high. I should probably mention the fact that 95%, we, we talked about that, 95% of plastic does not get recycled in any way, not even attempted. And then when you see what they consider recycling, you go, oh, that's not what I thought it was. You know, they're grinding it up into little pellets and like stuffing it in things like road pavement. That's considered recycling. So when we embarked on our project of a year of no garbage, we were throwing away, we were filling up our 96-gallon trash wheelable trash container every single week and putting it by the curb. So I knew that we were getting rid of 96 gallons of trash a week. Of course, we had our year of no garbage. And then in the aftermath, I've now kept track. And our average is we now throw away into the landfill nine gallons of trash per week. So I'm very proud of that reduction. It's a substantial reduction. And I think a lot of it comes down to slowing down and being thoughtful 
and paying more attention because in the past, you know, it's like when you go to the supermarket and you mean to bring your bags, but you forgot them. You know, like I would mean to compost all the food scraps, but sometimes the container's full and it's raining outside and I don't want to dump the container. So what do I do? Well, it would go in the trash. You know, it's like you mean well, but you're in a hurry and you got things to do. So now I think that one of the keys to addressing the plastic waste crisis is as a culture that we agree it's a problem. We agree it's very, very serious and that we want to do something about it. And that as a culture, it's worth slowing down and being more thoughtful and considering what we put into a landfill or our incinerator. Well, that's a wonderful segue into the slow living question. What does slow living mean to you? Well, what I love is that I didn't really intend this, but the series of books that I've done, you know, I I consider it sort of a trilogy now, and it felt very nice and neat. I started with the things that we put in our bodies, our food with sugar, And then I talked about the things that we keep in our homes in terms of clutter. And then I talked about the things that we send out of our homes, which is garbage. And so what's interesting about the things that we send out into the world as garbage, those get into our food system and come right back to food (laughs) and go back into our bodies, right? So I feel like inadvertently I've come full circle. It feels good because it feels like a, a nice place to end this series of stunt memoirs. Slow Living is where I come to with each one of my books in the conclusion, whether it's trying to avoid added sugar in our food and eat better and in a more healthy way, whether it's trying to have an environment that I enjoy more and I keep the things that matter to me, but I'm able to let go of the things that I don't need and that are, you know, that are destructive for me to keep you know, or the issue of garbage and what we throw away and what happens to it after it leaves our home. All of these come back to the same issue of slowing down and being more thoughtful in our lives. And I realized that our current contemporary culture really is the opposite of that. It's, it does not encourage that. It encourages us to constantly be speeding up all the time. Everything, is, you know, efficiency, convenience, make things cheap and easy That's the emphasis of everything in our culture that's seen as positive. And so if somebody asks you, how are you? And you say, I'm busy. People go, good. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like that's seen as a virtue. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to be busy, but I'm saying being busy for the sake of being busy isn't necessarily a good goal. And I do think there's tremendous value in the way we live our lives and, and in the impact we have on our families, on the planet everything in slowing down and being more thoughtful and making, you know, in the process, maybe different decisions than we would had we not slowed down. Yes. Amen, sister. (laughs) (laughs) That's everything we talk about. Thank you so much. (laughs) So the other question we ask all of our guests is what does good dirt mean to you? And you can answer that any way that comes to mind. I like this question because there's no right answer, right? (laughs) And what it means to me, good dirt seems like it would be something to value and aspire to because it's all about, you know, where do we come from? We come from the earth. Where do we get our food and our sustenance? We get it from the earth. We want the dirt to be good so that we can be good, so that we can be healthy and happy. And so it immediately makes me think of the fact that microplastics unfortunately, have infiltrated every aspect of our environment. And everywhere scientists are looking for microplastics, they're finding them, not just in the human body, but at the top of Mount Everest. 
at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Plastic is now everywhere and it's in our farm fields, which means it's in our food and our, our fruits and our vegetables. That dirt is getting contaminated. And so we need to stop that. We need good dirt so that we can have good lives. That is the right answer, Eve. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so your book and this conversation have given us just great pause and you've really gotten our attention and we've heard some really scary things, some really daunting things, some things nobody wants to hear. You've also given us lots of good laughs. Thank you so much. That really <laughs> helps. That helps deliver the message, as I said earlier. And I think you're part of a growing number of writers and scientists and personalities and influencers and whatever you want to call them that are, that are giving us all a wake-up call. And I want to ask you, do you think people are waking up? What do you see? I mean, I know your book is newly published and you haven't really had time to see the effect yet, but what do you think is happening out there with this messaging? I do think that the time is right. The timing is good to have this conversation. And I do feel that it is being received now, now that we're, you know, we've, we've passed the terrible time of the pandemic and we're able to address other issues. I think most people don't realize that the issue of disposable plastic is the same conversation as the issue of climate change, that we need to group all of these things in one category together. They're all related. I do find that the momentum on this issue is really good. And I feel delighted that the message of my book is able to go out in the world and be heard and received. And I've gotten a lot of terrific attention. I was delighted to have my book show up in a New Yorker article a few weeks ago. I didn't even know that it was happening, but my book is not the only book that's coming out right now about the evils of plastic. So this article was about three different books and mine was one of them about the evils of plastic. And so the timing seems to be really right, that other people are thinking about this problem all at the same time. And that's a really good sign. I think that it's been coming for a while. I think that when I did my book, Year of No Sugar, I felt very similarly that people were not talking about sugar when we began the project. But by the time the book came out, it was becoming like, oh, sugar, maybe we should look at this, you know? And so the timing was very, very good. And that's very important. People need to be ready to hear a message. Because if we're talking about changing your life in any way, that's uncomfortable. And people want to know why. Why should I change my life? For what? But it turns out that this, you know, it could not be more important. And for that reason, it's really good that you went on and pushed through it during the pandemic year and didn't say, oh, we'll go back and do this in a normal year because the timing of that made you ready to have this out now. That's true. And I also was not sure I could keep my family on board if I stopped and started again. <laughs> I was like, I better keep going. <laughs> As I said in the beginning, they're all such good sports and it's remarkable. So Thank you for sharing all of this. It's really wonderful. I am extremely grateful to my whole family for being tolerant of, of my experimentations. <laughs> okay. So, Emma, you want to take us home? Sure. Gosh, I would say, where do you want people to find you and follow you? Obviously, they can buy your book, but is there anywhere else? Are you writing regularly elsewhere or are you on social media and how can people follow you? Excellent question. <laughs> yes, please buy my book. 
it also is available as an ebook. It's also available as an audio book. Borrow it from a friend, go to the library. Please, please, please get my book. However, but I do write a blog and that's at eveshob.com. And I'm also very active on social media. My publisher told me that I should become a social media star to promote my book. So I've been endeavoring to do so, <laughs> which is, is a very interesting thing to try to undertake. In fact, I, and I write about this in the book, my daughter's boyfriend is a bona fide influencer. And so I, I followed his lead and I, I talked to him about it a lot. And so I've got TikTok videos. I have Instagram. I have Facebook. I have thread, threads. I have Twitter. You can find all of these things usually under Eve Shab or Eve Oshab. Amazing. I've seen some of the YouTube videos. They're a lot of fun. Again, I, I, I want to have fun. I don't want people to feel that this topic needs to be all just, you can't come away feeling depressed and hopeless because that is not going to do any good. So instead, I want to bring joy to the subject. Which you certainly do. And you do such a great job of it. All right. Thank you so much, Eve. This has been a delight. And I really do hope we get to do it again because I feel like we have so much more to discuss. I'd love to. I'm in. Thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Love the book. Just really impressed with all of the great information in it and also how convincing your message is. So thank you so much for all your work. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Have a great day. Tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.